I'm Sherry Greco-Rikus, co-founder of Rappaport Rikus Capital Management. Welcome to the Maximize Your Return on Life podcast. As an investment advisor, I guide clients to reflect upon their core values as they make major life decisions. I will be interviewing real people with real stories who have embraced this approach to achieve success. I hope their stories will inspire you to maximize your return on life. Today, welcome Lindsay Page Marcus. I've known Lindsay for a long time. I met Lindsay at the Standard Club. She was also involved in the JUF, the Jewish United Federation of Chicago. We both were on the board. We've been involved in a lot of other committees and a lot of other nonprofits. Every time I see Lindsay, there's a big smile and a lot of energy, which I think you'll see through this podcast today. Lindsay is a shareholder at Chuhok and Texan and leads the firm's 25 attorney estate planning and asset protection group. I've referred many clients to Lindsay and they always love her. She does such a great job. But I kind of feel like Lindsay and I are on parallel paths. We always connect through the city of Chicago and charities. But as many of the listeners know, I wrote a book last year and also Lindsay wrote a book. It's called A Gift for the Future, Conversations About Estate Planning. It's a number one bestseller on Amazon in the legal self-help and also a number one bestseller of new releases on Amazon. I actually have a copy of the book, and today uh, we're going to talk about Lindsay's path to being an estate planning attorney, why she wrote the book, and this book is so user-friendly. There's so many great estate planning tips. We can't cover them all, but we're going to cover a few today, so make sure you stay tuned. And also, I'm going to talk to Lindsay on how she maximizes her return on life. So, Lindsay, let's start at the beginning. Um, how did you become an estate planning attorney? Tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, I got a start in law later in life. It was a second career for me. I had a background in business and finance, and I really went back to law school, never dreaming of becoming a lawyer, but rather because I wanted to continue to have the types of promotions that I'd become accustomed to. And through my undergraduate studies, I'd gotten a master's in international economics and finance. But what I saw when I was in business and finance was at each important critical junction, there was an attorney present. So I thought that if I was going to learn a new skill set, law would be a wonderful one to acquire. And I went to law school. I was exposed to estate planning. It piqued my interest. And I thought, you know, before I go back to business and finance, let me at least try practicing. And what's most interesting is since law school, I've been doing the same thing at the same firm my entire career. I just love it. Great. And I'm sure your financial skills come in very handy with estate planning because a lot of numbers are involved. Absolutely. When I went to college, my dad said to me, get your accounting degree. You can use it for anything you want in the future. And, and I listened to him. So, so how long have you been an estate planning attorney? About 16 years. Wow. Wow. And I know, you know, you've, you're always mentioned in the top lists and the media, and I know that, that you're always quoted, but I'd like to focus a little bit our discussion today 
about the book. What made you decide to write a book after all these years of being an estate planning attorney? You know, I think what was most eye-opening for me was when I first started practicing, my parents handed me their estate plan. And before I even flipped through the pages, I could recognize from just looking at the stack of paper or the lack thereof that my father was carrying, that there was quite a bit missing. And the more that I delved into things with my parents, the more I realized that if my parents, two bright, educated doctors, did not have the proper plan in place, it could happen to anyone. And in that moment, I recognized that for the most part, I think people don't have the right plan in place really because they don't know. And it's a function of education. So I decided that I was going to make it my mission to try and teach as many people as possible about estate planning. And I was frustrated because on the one hand, there were really complex articles and um, books written talking, you know, referencing the Internal Revenue Code and issues and regulations. And then on the other extreme, we saw very simplistic articles that were often misleading. And I wanted to find something that could bridge the gap. And that was my goal. Yeah. And I, I flipped through the book. I mean, and I read a lot of the chapters and I'm a very visual person. So I like that you have a lot of these visual aids to kind of talk about the concepts because I think it's great. What really struck me was in the very beginning, you have your four guiding principles of estate planning, um, minimize taxes, avoid the courts, asset protection, and leave a desired legacy. And I look at that list. We work with clients. We have our CFO checklist. And one of the most important things is the estate planning. And sometimes, you know, I did have a client that said they'd rather get a root canal than go meet with their estate planning attorney. And it's so important because who doesn't want those four things? So I know there was a chapter in the book. Why are people avoiding getting their estate planning done? What do you see in your experience? You know, it's complicated. Uh, if it were easy, everyone could do it. Um, they wouldn't need an attorney's assistance. They wouldn't need someone who concentrates in this area. And when you really get into the details, and especially some of the tax planning considerations, it can become very technical. But for anyone who absolutely dreads sitting down with their attorney, I would say they're not with the right attorney. I think you could probably say the same thing about your practice. You know, if I told you that a client of mine absolutely dread sitting down with their wealth advisor, well, arguably, they're not with the right strategic partner. Um, I think at the end of the day, these are difficult conversations to have. Um, I often say that a client has to get really vulnerable and naked in front of us. They have to share with me what their assets and liabilities are, who they love, who they can't stand what type of legacy they want to leave. And it's a difficult conversation to have. So if they're not sitting down with the right advisor, it makes it that much more dreadful. But at the end of the day, the optimist in me likes to think that this is on everyone's to-do list, but life takes over. You know, you have a toothache, uh, a kid gets sick, you get sick, uh, you have a deadline at work. But like anything else, the more that we procrastinate with these critical tasks, the harder it becomes. And as I'm sure you've seen in your work with clients that you work proactive planning with, 
there's this just wonderful sense of accomplishment and fulfillment they feel when they go through the exercise and actually do the work and get it done. Um, there's a sense of relief. There's a sense of empowerment. And so I think my hope really through the book is to help educate the masses that it should not be similar to a root canal experience. And hopefully clients will find it much more empowering and enjoyable than the root canal. <laughs> right. And often, you know, a lot of people are, they can't make the decision, the guardian decision, the executor, the financial power. But the beauty is you are making a decision by not doing anything. You're doing nothing. It can be changed. So get started. Let's, you know, get the documents prepared. You can always change it later. But to have nothing, you know, it would be really detrimental to, to your family. So um, I've been humming this song about Jack and Diane. So are you a John Mellencamp fan or how did you come up with the characters and kind of talk about how you came on the outline of the book? For sure. Well, you know, the topic of death and taxes is not always a pick me up of a conversation. You know, I always use in my conversations with clients and strategic partners, analogies and examples. And to lighten things up a little, first in the book, we use Brad Pitt as my fictional husband to explain complexities with estate and income tax planning considerations. And then if we were to follow a couple, who else makes everyone smile other than Jack and Diane? Yeah. Um, like you said, you hear the song in the back of your head. Um, and I wanted to find a young couple uh, that we could follow through the course of their lives and see and watch how their estate plan changes as their lives change, as they have family, as they have start businesses, become charitable, and so on and so forth. And I can't help myself. So we're going to dive into Jack and Diane. Um, we're going to start when they get engaged. But I do have a lot of young listeners. And if I can mention one thing, it's a healthcare power of attorney. If you are over 18, if you have to go online, talk to your parents' estate planning attorney. But my daughter fell when she was skiing and tore her ACL and went to the doctor and said, Mom, I need surgery. And I wanted to get more information. And we had to send um, the healthcare power so that we could be on her portal and get information. So for you parents out there and young adults, get that healthcare power. But I think it'll be kind of fun to talk about Jack and Diane. And if you guys are listening, you may be having the song go through your mind as we talk about it. But um, Lindsay, if you can give maybe two or three tips with these different stages of life. So Jack and Diane get engaged. I've had a lot of friends whose kids recently have got engaged and it's it's a big thing now. There's pictures, there's photos, there's engagement parties and everyone figures all those things out. But what do they need to figure out as part of their estate plan when you get engaged? So I think the first question for any couple getting engaged and looking to get married is really to think about what the financial and tax considerations are in connection with not just getting married, but also the potential for divorce. Because in life, we always need to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. And all of us know the statistics in terms of the high rates of divorce. I'm not saying don't get married, 
I'm just saying, go in with your eyes wide open. Um, one of my partners was teasing me or giving me a hard time when he was getting married and really pushing back with the idea of a prenuptial agreement. And he said to me, he said, Lindsay, how many of your clients do you think don't get married because of the prenup? And I told him really quickly, I, I came back to him right away and I said, none of my clients don't get married because of the prenup. I think what the prenuptial agreement and what those conversations help couples do is have those difficult conversations that many of them don't often have. I've had many brides and grooms tell me that they thought that it should be a requirement similar to some of the religious orders, how they have those, you know, relationship training courses, that there should be a boot camp on investing and legal implications and connection with marriage and divorce, just so they're educated when they go in. It's not necessarily a requirement for everyone, but you got to know what you're getting involved in because there's nothing worse than having regrets later. Yeah, and especially couples that get married a little later that have accumulated some assets. It's it's a it's a great idea. So Jack and Diane get engaged. They have their beautiful wedding. They've traveled around the world. They've got their career set up, but they decide to start a family. On our end, uh, we kind of do something called liability planning. We make sure that, God forbid, one of them loses their job. Um, is there enough disability? God forbid one of them you know, has a premature death. What would that look like for the family on life insurance? So we do a lot of the financial side of planning. What do you do on the estate planning once someone starts a family? So it's interesting. This seems to be the number one reason why clients start the estate planning process. All of a sudden they recognize there's another person that we're responsible for. And the impetus is really in connection with guardianship for a minor child or minor children. So if God forbid something happened to a parent or both parents, who would look after and raise the child? And that tends to be the start of the conversations. But then to your point, it's a question of who's looking after the assets? Who's managing the assets? Do you want everything first held for a surviving spouse and then automatically pass to children? Or are you okay with the surviving spouse potentially turning around and leaving the assets to a pool boy? So it's this concept of starting to understand estate tax implications in connection with death for a married couple, how things can be structured and how you can control the flow of resources so that the money is there for your loved ones. But if something happens unexpected, you can still control the waterfall or order of succession for who's to inherit. And then when we talk about children, it's the idea that we want to protect them not only from the outside world, but also from themselves so that little Susie, when she's 18, can't go to the bank and withdraw a couple million dollars. So a lot of those kinds of conversations, sitting down with clients and educating them on what their options are to organize their estate plan for loved ones. Yeah, that's great, Lindsay. And again, for the listeners, another tip, um, I often find 
a lot of new clients come to me and the last time they've updated their estate plan was when their kids were born and their kids are now 24, 25. And, and they might have thought that at age 25, their kids would be responsible to handle money and they might want to change those years. So I think it's important that you don't just put it on the shelf as life changes. And maybe every five to 10 years, you look at it. I often ask, you know, who's the executor? There's this blank look sometimes. So um, I think it's important that people do revisit because I do find that that is a time where a lot of people did the estate plan and then they never really looked at it for a long time. So make sure they look. And Lindsay and I both have a passion for this charitable planning. A lot of your clients, I know we worked on one together. It was pretty complicated. Do have charitable planning. So what are some, I can give just a few tips for today. You know, you should always use appreciated stock. If you have a major charitable gift, a donor advised fund, that's a fund that you can set up and fund with low basis stock. And then over time you can make the contributions. And we probably have to do a whole podcast just on donor advice funds. But how does estate planning also help clients if they have charitable intent long term, especially after they're gone? I think at the end of the day, we want to be strategic in terms of which assets we're leaving to which beneficiaries, to loved ones, to family members, and charitable organizations. Because if we're smart in terms of which assets we're leaving to which group of beneficiaries, and we're strategic from a estate tax and income tax planning perspective, in many ways, we're able to kind of grow the pot. So traditional retirement plan assets. Imagine I have a million dollar IRA. And if in my delusional hypothetical, I'm also fortunate enough to have a taxable gross estate which means I have more than the estate tax-free amount that I'm allowed to pass at death. Can you let them know what that amount is? Sure. So based on the year in which you die, the government allows you to pass a certain amount of money tax-free, which we call the exemption amount. Right now at the federal level, it's very high. In 2022, it's $12.06 million. In 2023, the inflation adjustment numbers are going to be around 12.92 million, so just shy of 13 million. That's temporary, though. And in 2026, it's scheduled to drop back in half to what we believe will be about six and a half million dollars. Another area of complexity, though, is what state are you a resident of as of your date of death? So for those of us who live in Illinois, the exemption or tax-free amount at the federal level might be over 12 million dollars. But in Illinois, it's only $4 million. So when we talk about someone having a taxable gross estate, that means that they have more than that tax-free amount that we could pass at death. So if I had a million-dollar retirement plan account, and I had, across all of my assets, equity in business, interests in real estate, long-term investments, personal belongings, and the list goes on and on. If the total value of assets in my estate was over those tax-free amounts, for traditional IRA assets, when we combine the estate tax, often referred to as a death tax, so the tax that the family would or the estate would have to pay at death, 
as well as the income tax implications as I start to take out those required minimum distributions, the combined tax effect can actually be an excess of 70%, 70%. So on a million dollar retirement plan, it's feasible that my children might get $300,000 or less. Whereas if I earmarked that million dollars to pass directly to the Jewish United Fund of Metropolitan Chicago or my family's donor advised fund, that charity or that donor advised fund, which would in turn distribute those assets to charities, gets the full million dollars. So if we're strategic and take a little bit more time to figure out which assets we're leaving to which beneficiaries, individuals versus charities, we can actually leave more to everyone. And I think that's an aspect of the proactive planning that's often overlooked. You know, clients are so anxious about getting things in place. They want to have something down. They do it. And to your point, Sherry, they set it aside and they don't look at it again. Whereas if we're creative and spend a little bit more time artfully figuring out what goes to which individuals and organizations, we can end up leaving more to everyone. We also advise our clients a lot to use retirement assets. If you're over 70, you can actually donate up to 100000 from your IRA to a charity and also leaving a legacy or leaving a long-term gift. And there's a chapter in my book and it says we all, instead of just giving your valuables, give your values to your family. And I think when your family sees that that part of your estate is going to charity, you are passing those values on to the next generation. So there could be a way to win-win between working with your tax advisor, your financial advisor, and your estate planning attorney, there's a way to win-win for the family, for the charity, and just feeling good about um, getting all that done. So we talked about, you know, Jack and Diane, they're, you know, been very successful. They did all the charitable planning, but unfortunately you got a call that they're getting divorced. And we work with a lot of women um, and men who get divorced, but what are some of the things after a divorce that needs to be taken care of from the estate planning side? So I think the number one thing that everyone needs to know is that no matter what the estate planning documents say, the beneficiary designations govern. We've all heard horror stories or perhaps inadvertent windfalls for an ex who's listed still as a beneficiary on a retirement plan or a life insurance policy. So it's critical to be diligent and make certain that you update beneficiary designations. In almost all of the states, when a couple goes through a divorce, they treat the ex-spouse as having predeceased them. So if Brad and I were married and we got divorced, even if I didn't get around to updating my state plan right away, Brad would be deemed to have predeceased me for purposes of my estate plan and everything would pass to whomever's next in line. But what clients forget about is the fact that, first and foremost, it's quite possible that a lot's changed in the law since Brad and I first did our estate planning. So we want to update documents with respect to that. 
But another consideration is that Brad's family members are still referenced throughout my estate plan. And although the documents treat Brad as having predeceased me, it doesn't treat that whole side of the family as having predeceased me. So sometimes it's updating decision makers who will be a successor, trustee, an executor, an agent under a power of attorney for healthcare, power of attorney for property, and also looking at who will ultimately stand to potentially inherit. Unfortunately, when couples go through the divorce process, a lot of them experience what I refer to as attorney fatigue. They're, they're just done with us. They've had enough. Even in the most idyllic situations where couples can go through a divorce on a collaborative basis and work in a respectful manner together um, to leave the relationship with the same respect and dignity that they came into, it's still a difficult process for both parties involved. And many of them don't want to look at estate planning. But what they forget about is the fact that the process can actually be very empowering to take control over your assets, your side of the balance sheet, your net worth, and to make your own independent decisions about who's going to manage things. So it's a critical thing that all divorcees need to go through. But unfortunately, it's something that's often left in the dust and falls to the bottom of someone's to-do list, as we talked about. Yeah, and it's it's really important, too, because now the decision is yours and you need to make that decision and follow your values. Um, I just want to bring up, because this is one thing that we've been working a lot with our clients, is to just double check all the beneficiaries. Like you mentioned, we've seen times someone's worked at a company for 30 years and they might have a brother on there and they've been married you know, for 20 of those years. So please check the beneficiaries. And if you have young children as the successor, make sure you get your estate plan and, and get that taken care of. One thing that we've also advised our clients, there is one thing to get all the technical and the estate plan all drafted, but sometimes we often talk to our clients about a letter of intent that we call it. So what kind of wishes would you like, you know, for your burial? What kind of service do you want? Um, are there special jewelry or artwork or things you'd like to leave to a, a family member. So we often, you know, it's a very stressful time for a family. So if you can talk about those soft things, I call it, um, in addition to the estate plan, it's really important. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, oftentimes the discourse and the conflict amongst family members is not necessarily over the value of the family business. It's also who's gonna get the painting mm -hmm. that hung over the fireplace. Uh, and those personal belongings. And I think anytime we can provide more guidance to our loved ones on what our wishes are, it alleviates and avoids a lot of the ambiguity and in, in turn, a lot of the potential conflict for family members. Great. And Lindsay, there is a really, really good chapter on here. Unfortunately, when a loved one does pass away, things that you should do. And I really hope that everyone will get this book, but you know, things like file the will, notify Social Security, you know, make sure you get the death certificates, putting a list together of all the assets and liabilities. Uh, we have something on our website called Just In Case, and we try to preempt that by having our clients list everything, you know, where 
is a safe deposit box? Who's your attorney? Where's the will? Where Who's the accountant? Where are all the assets being held? So the more you can get done beforehand, the better. So I think we covered from young adult all the way till the end. And, and I hope that you guys on this podcast who are listening found some great tips. But I want to switch gears a little bit with Lindsay. And how do you maximize your return on life, Lindsay? There are so many different ways. I think first and foremost with family, spending time with family and friends. And from a practice perspective, I try to be really proactive in my planning. When I'm making a batch of bolognese, I'll make 30 pounds. So I have excess in the fridge and in the freezer. So if at the last minute, family member or good friend is sick, I can bring some over. You know where I live, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to bring you some. We'll, we'll share some bolognese yeah. when, the, when the podcast airs. But I find that those small touches are very meaningful to me. And we all get carried away with our lives and how busy we are. And you can't always set everything aside and make a new batch of, of pasta sauce. So that, and then, you know, through our shared passion for charitable work, I think that's made a meaningful difference in my life. Um, it helps provide me with perspective, keeps me grounded and feeling good. And they always say you get back more than you give. And I, I find that true. Lindsay, speaking of, of giving, can you talk a little bit about your women's initiative at the law firm? Because I know you were very instrumental and I've been to a lot of uh, the events. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? So several years ago, our firm launched an initiative called Women Helping Women. We recognize that women oftentimes market and network very differently from men. And we wanted to find a venue and a forum for women to get together in a way that would be efficient from a networking perspective. And there was something magical that ended up happening. We were trying to make it a value add, not just to the attendees, but also to the community. And what we found is that by bringing together women with a shared passion for charitable planning, because we always partner with a different charitable organization, and supporting and helping one another, it creates this electrifying energy in the room at these networking events. Because, you know, to your point, you get more than what you give. Um, and so we, on an annual basis, would host a women's networking event where we would invite strategic partners, clients to get together. And we would all come together, not just to network, but to also support a different charitable organization and learn about a charity that's dedicated to helping women or women and children. And the response has been really incredible. Yeah, the events are great. Obviously, the food and drinks are great. The company's great. And helping a good cause is always great. So I just want to thank you, Lindsay. I hope that the listeners some of the points that Lindsay uh, provided today will help you maximize your return on life. If you'd like to learn more about how our firm, Rappaport Rikas Capital Management, can help you maximize your return on life, please go to our website at rrcapital.com. Also, we have our own website for the podcast called MaximizeYourReturnOnLife.com. On that website, we will have links to Lindsay, to her book, 
and other information about Lindsay that I think you'll find uh, really fascinating. So thank you, Lindsay. And I hope that um, in addition to the book, this podcast will give some push to some of our listeners to get that estate planning done. They will feel so good when they get it done. And who knows, maybe if you get it done, you'll get some bolognese dropped off at your house when when it's all said and done. So thanks a lot, Lindsay, and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks. Thank you.